Meanwhile, at the DC Nation, we are tonight's <laughs> entertainment. Here we go. None of the Robins ever complain. You're going to melt just like a And show you just how powerful I really am. Always hold Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways DC Nation, the podcast dedicated to reviewing all the amazing content DC Comics provides to you as its fans, most notably focusing on the TV shows Gotham, Flash, Arrow, Supergirl, and DC Legends of Tomorrow. And with me is my co-host... Hey everyone, Michael J. Petty here. On this week's episode, Steve joins Nico as we continue our coverage of all 2016 television season with the next episode of Goth Mad City. And Nico and I are going to be here to review episodes of Supergirl, The Flash, Arrow, and DC's Legends of Tomorrow the DC shows on the CW. But before we do that, Nico's going to kick things off with this week's News with Nico DC Headlines. The Batman film sets its schedule. It looks like we won't have to wait too long to find out what's in store in Ben Affleck's first solo film as the Batman, since we now know when the film will begin shooting, and it's all thanks to Joe Manganiello. He plays Deathstroke, aka Slade Wilson. The actor spilled the beans in the midst of a new red carpet interview with Entertainment Tonight. After he was asked how he was doing in the wake of a recent health scare, Manganiello said he's doing great and offered proof of his stamina by saying he's getting ready to start shooting the Batman in the spring. You know, I find it amusing how closely Manganiello resembles the actor who plays Deathstroke on TV's Arrow, New Zealander Manu Bennett. In fact, both actors resemble each other a lot more than either of them does the comic book character, the original version of Deathstroke back in the 80s, created by comic book artist George Perez. Anyway, we now know that the Batman shoots in the spring. Dear CW, it's time for a Superman spinoff. On this week's Supergirl episode, Tyler Hoechlin made his second appearance as Clark Kent slash Superman on the CW Supergirl series. It's not clear when or if Hawkland will be back on the show, but his guest spot in the second season premiere has already convinced many critics, including myself, that the Man of Steel belongs on television, and we want to see Hawkland star in his own Superman series as soon as possible. If there's one word that sums up everything about Supergirl's take on the last son of Krypton, it's fun. Hawkland's Superman actually smiles, and he seems more good-natured than some of his more recent live-action counterparts. Any doubts about Hawkland's suitability for the role should be wiped away after his charming episode last week. He's great in the role, and he, and he kind of reminds me of almost Dean Cain's Superman from the 90s era, Lois and Clark. It's only been five years since Smallville ended its decade-long run with the briefest of glimpses of Tom Welling in costume, but in just a single episode, Supergirl proved that Kite and Flight can still work on TV for one of the most iconic heroes in comics. It's enough to make us wonder why Smallville avoided giving us that for so many years. Now, Michael and I suggested that if Warner Brothers is not up for a spinoff for Superman, maybe he could find a place on the Legends of Tomorrow series in our discussion last week, and we'll touch on that again in this week's episode. Regardless, I hope we see plenty of Superman in the future on on the DC Nation. 
Legend schedules Leonard Snart's return plus Arrow's episode 100 news. Dearly departed anti-hero Leonard Snart will return to Legends of Tomorrow in the CW sophomore's mid-season finale. It was revealed on Tuesday at a press event. As previously reported, the iconic and nefarious Legend of Doom will be the major big bad that the Legends as well as the JSA have to face this season. Populated by the already revealed Damian Dark and Eobard Thawne, aka Reverse Flash, along with Snart's Captain Cold, Alter Ego, and longtime Arrow frenemy Malcolm Merlin, who makes his Legends debut in Episode 8, played by Wentworth Miller, who now has a series, series regular deal across all of the CW superhero shows. Snart famously sacrificed his life late in Legends Season 1, so the Captain Cold we will see in the Legend of Doom likely is in some other earlier incarnation of the character. Speaking of the DCTV universe's big bads, it's also been confirmed that Arrow's 100th episode, which marks Part 3 of the CW Hero Series 4-way crossover event, will feature both Damian Dark and Malcolm Merlin, along with many others and sometimes improbable returning faces, which include Moira King, Deathstroke, and Laurel Lance. Ratings, Arrow's hits low, final debate up versus round two. The CW's Arrow this Wednesday targeted 1.8 million total viewers and a 0.6 demo rating per finals, ticking down on each count to series lows. The Big Four's coverage of the third and final presidential debate amassed 34.6 million total viewers per Fast Nationals, up 16% from round two, yet shy of the Clinton-Trump first face-off at 45.3 million. Now, this is the second time this season in only three episodes that I've reported on low numbers for Arrow. This is not a good sign for things to come of the series if the ratings continue near series lows. Some of the loss of viewership could be due to the low debates, but even then, it doesn't explain all of it. Not good for Arrow. And that's the News with Mingo DC headlines for this week. All right. As Michael said, we are going to kick things off with Steve coming in and talking about Gotham's Mad City with the fifth episode of season three entitled Anything for You. While Oswald deals with dissension in his ranks, Bruce asks Jim to track down the missing Ivy. Meanwhile, Edward pays a visit to his old department after Oswald appoints him the police liaison. After last week's Mad Hatter-heavy episode, Gotham took a break from Jarvis Tesh to focus on the ongoing drama surrounding Penguin's appointment to the office of mayor. It's a story that has emerged as one of the most pivotal of this season's first half. But despite this focus, the creative team still managed to sneak in some surprises. The return of the Red Hood game, which hasn't been seen in action since season one, could even pave the way for Jerome's return. Most notably, Butch finally got a chance to prove why he's actually one of the most underappreciated villains on Gotham. This episode also marked a significant step for Bruce and Selina, as he finally revealed his true feelings. It's a moment that has been a long time coming for the two friends and future enemies. It also provided an opportunity to check in on the search for Ivy, whose storyline has been put on hold for the past couple of weeks. In short, anything for you is a particularly tightly crafted episode and perhaps one of the best Gotham has brought to us so far this season. Nigma and Penguin's friendship was one of the greatest developments to come out of season two and so far this year. The writers are doing a fantastic job following up on that premise. With Nigma deeply entrenched in Penguin's mayoral administration, we get to see some amazing scenes of the murderous psychopath returning to GCPD with a new sense of power. The reactions he received from his former co-workers and especially Lee give the show and Enigma's character a much needed dramatic boost. So often the GCPD is where the show slips from being one of the over 
top comic book and instantly into a blander police procedural. Nigma's shift in power has re-energized the dramatic. After all, he is perhaps the smartest character on the show and not one anyone should want to see in a position of any authority. What do you think of Nigma's reception by the GCPD? Are you impressed that Lee finally stood up for herself? And was it a smart move to threaten Ned like she did? Nigma's return to the GCPD carried the necessary drama and gravitas the show needed, as did his threat delivered to Barnes that while the mayor might not be able to directly fire any cop at the GCPD, he could hire a new police commissioner to do it for him. This ensures that most of the GCPD falls in line with Nigma's power play, but not Lee. Her slugging Nigma was a satisfying moment for the character and felt genuine for someone who was friends with Kristen Kringle, but her dropping Falcone's name and using her new familial ties as a threat was badass. It wasn't smart to threaten Ed, but the way she did it ensured he couldn't come after her directly for fear of reprisal from Falcone or hurting Penguin politically or financially by us upsetting his crime empire. Speaking of Nigma's intelligence, did anyone really think that Nigma was ready or at least this early to betray Penguin? He's devious and manipulative, yes, but the future Riddler knows better than to jeopardize his newly found position and poor Butch who fell all too easily for Nigma's schemes discredit him in the eyes of Penguin. This rivalry between these two is so much fun to watch, and now that it appears Gotham's many villains could be shifting their alliances once again. The storyline also marked the return of the Red Hood gang for the first time since season one. Was anyone really surprised that Butch was behind the Red Hood gang's revival? Okay, I was a little shocked, but... Can you really blame Butch? It's It's been him and Penguin for such a long time. And of course, he's going to be a little jealous about Nigma taking over that special spot in Oswald's heart. Longtime fans may know that the Joker's comic book backstory has coincided with that particular gang. So perhaps Gotham is gearing itself up for Jerome to reappear as part of the revamped Red Hood gang or finally giving fans a character who is more blatantly destined to become the Joker. In any case, is the reemergence of the Red Hood gang a step in the right direction. You know, I thought so, but with the Red Hood gang f- from this episode being shown to not only not really be the red the real Red Hood gang, but rather just Butch leading a bunch of guys to pretend to take down Penguin so he could stop them and be the hero and Penguin's number one guy again, I I was actually really disappointed by that. For those of you who have read the Killing Joke graphic novel by Alan Moore and Brian Bolin, you know that through flashbacks in that story, the man who will become the Joker is an unnamed engineer who quits his job at a chemical company to become a stand-up comedian, only to fail miserably, but but desperate to support his pregnant wife, he agrees to guide two criminals from the Red Hood gang through the criminal plant where he previously worked so that they can rob the playing card company next to it. During the planning of this crime, however, his wife dies in a household accident and the grief-stricken engineer tries to get out of or withdraw from the plan, uh, but those criminals strong-arm him into keeping his commitment to them. When they're at the actual plant, the criminals make him don a special mask to become the infamous Red Hood. Unknown to the engineer, the criminals plan to use this disguise to implicate him and any other accomplices as the mastermind and to divert attention away from themselves. So once they're inside, they encounter security personnel and a shootout ensues and the two criminals are killed. The engineer is confronted by Batman, who is investigating the disturbance. And obviously the terrified engineer jumps into the chemical plant's waste pond to escape Batman and is swept through a pipe leading to the outside. And once he's outside, that's when he discovers to his horror that the chemicals have permanently 
bleached his skin chalk white, stained his lips ruby red, and dyed his hair bright green. The engineer's disfigurement, compounded with the loss of his family, drives him completely insane and marks the birth of the Joker. Most people who know the Red Hood gang are probably aware of this Joker origin story and its importance, but fewer are aware that Bruce was once a member of the Red Hood gang in his year one book and or his zero issue of the New 52, in which a young Bruce Wayne, not yet Batman, having recently returned to Gotham to start his crime-fighting career, chose as one of his early targets the Red Hood gang, which he managed to infiltrate undercover. Unfortunately for Bruce, the leader of the Red Hood gang knew his group had been infiltrated and managed to weed out a disguised Bruce as the culprit. Though the Red Hood gang attempted to kill him, Bruce was obviously able to escape into the sewers after the police showed up to break up the robbery. The Red Hood gang eventually followed him into the sewer system, but a very smart Bruce had put a prototype motorcycle that he'd hidden in the tunnels and that allowed him to escape. So to waste the return of the Red Hood gang in this episode on Butch trying to get back into the good graces of Penguin felt like a complete waste and miss for me. I do think the Red Hood gang will rise again, and when it does, it will be the Red Hood gang that ultimately leads to Batman and the Joker. So until then, I say let's lay off any more Red Hood gang stories, because this one didn't work. Yeah, but back to Ed and Oswald again for a minute. It was a very heavy in Edward and Oswald episode. Because this episode opens with a montage of their love as Penguin's previous companion. Butch scowls in the background. It should worry us that Penguin is the most confident mayor in Gotham's history, but it's a pretty easy competition to win. He feeds the hungry, protects the weak, and even creates a statue of his immigrant mother, which was pretty sweet when you think about it. When Butch gets the Red Hood gang to destroy said statue and an elaborate plan to win back Penguin's affection, yes, Butch's plan to regain Penguin's attention is weak and kind of stupid, but that's just Butch's style. And can you blame the man for not being a little peeved? That the man he let chop off his hand is questioning his allegiance. The Ed Butch battle for Oswald's affections might take a twist too many, but it's built on the kind of artfully crafted character dynamics that Gotham rarely makes time for. Was anyone else expecting them to kiss? I really thought Gotham was going to go for it and make the radical but encouraging choice to be to take the two iconic DC villains as gay lovers. Also, giving some other future synopsis, it seems like there is still room for the show to move in that direction, should it so choose. Is this how you read this Penguin Riddler scene too? Yeah, that's definitely the vibe we were getting in those scenes, especially the scene where they ended up hugging. That almost felt like Penguin wanted to kiss Nigma, but at the last minute turned it into a hug because he was too afraid of the rejection. If if they want to make these two gay, I really don't have an issue with that. I do have an issue if it is purely a stunt. Comics have a long and checkered past of killing characters in stunts to raise readership, to only bring the character back in a reboot or reset of the timeline, and things like that. If making them gay is for ratings, then shame on Gotham. If it is for story, drama, and to bring the characters into the modern era, then good for Gotham, and I'm all for it. The last thing I want is to see them focus on the villain's sexuality to make a political statement or as a gimmick. That demeans the struggle for acceptance that many in the LGBT community and their allies have gone through. So I don't want to see if it, if it's just a ratings stunt, but if it's legitimate, there's a reason behind it, then go for it. Yeah, I agree. Well, Bruce finally got the courage to tell Selena that he likes her as more than a friend. Bruce's rooftop balcony scene managed to be simultaneously the most Bruce Wayne and most teen speech ever, which was pretty endearing. 
Selena's own response was just annoyance, making sure Bruce knows that he should never tell her what to do. And the gentle kiss at the end was so completely in character. Again, this moment worked because we know that these characters who have seen their, and we've seen their friendship evolve thanks to an encounter with emo Bruce in last week's episode. Selena chooses not to emotionally shut out Bruce. The real progress for her as a character and his assertion that we are the same is a sentiment that rings through with the disunion of their future alter egos, one that was also pointed out in Batman Return. As the duo continues to explore this aspect, hopefully the show will resist the urge to backpedal and keep these two characters moving forward. At least the revelation of grown-up Ike, who makes a brief appearance in this episode but didn't reveal herself because it's too much fun, will give Bruce and Selena something they can face together. Do you believe that Selena's old friend will eventually drag her further down towards a dark side? You know, had that scene with Bruce and Selena happened in season one, Dan and I would have been furious that it was too soon, too fast, not keeping with their characters. But this kiss and moment for the characters totally felt earned. You're right, Steve, that we have seen their friendship progress, grow, and the moment they had was so entirely Bruce and Selena being exactly who they are and who they will be in the future. I thought Selena's response after the kiss was brilliant and so very Catwoman-esque. This was very well done. I also agree that it will solidify their friendship and maybe more as we move forward, as long as Gotham and its showrunners don't lose their nerve and fall back on classic TV tropes and classic CW storytelling where the guy and girl can never be together or it doesn't work for some odd reason. The fact that they still have have the Ivy mystery to bring them together, I think this has potential to continue to progress their relationship for at least a few episodes before they do something to kick that relationship down the road. I had mentioned that I thought Selena will be loyal to Ivy when she finds out what has happened to her, both out of loyalty and a feeling of guilt over being involved in the Indian Hill freaks who did it to her. So it is likely that Ivy will get Selena into plenty of trouble in the coming episodes, but I'm not sure if, if she'll be what takes Selena down a darker path or if it will have to do with revenge on fish and the freaks and possibly even a confrontation with tabitha she does still need to get that whip i don't know which of those things will be what turns selena darker i guess we'll just have to wait and see gordon may be front and center on gotham but the show continues to do a solid job especially since last season and keeping in mind that the city's future hinges on bruce wayne considering how gordon's storyline tend to hit similar beats again and again it's refreshing when we get some cans at bruce taking another step or two towards becoming the Dark Knight. This episode we got a few little touches like that. First, Gordon briefly commented on Bruce's detective skills, and then later Alfred and Bruce discussed the importance of fake smiles and mingling, a disguise that will provide invaluable for Master Bruce once he begins donning the cape and cowl. Yes, this is needed much more on this series. While Gordon is the current hero of the story, the ultimate hero of Gotham needs to be the evolution of Bruce into the man who will become Batman. Batman is the hero of this universe and every step they take that shows Bruce's evolution to becoming Batman is huge and necessary to this series. To be honest, with how much they've messed up Gordon on this series, I'd be alright with the focus being shifted much more to Bruce, Alfred, and Selina's stories every week and less on Gordon, unless they finally decide to head him towards the commissioner he is destined to become. The clean, good cop. Possibly the only clean cop in Gotham at times. That is the only Jim Gordon I care to see emerging and that's what I want to see focused on until eventually we get to the point where Batman emerges, which I don't know if they're going to do on this series at the very end, but maybe they'll pull Smallville where we finally see Bruce get the idea of Batman in the series finale. 
the Mad Hatter has gotten even madder since his sister's untimely death, which is saying something. He has kidnapped a girl, dressed her up like his sister, and slit her throat. It is all some kind of calling card for Jim Gordon. Jervis even leaves a bloody note. Jim Gordon sure does have a knack for attracting criminals. What might be Touch's ultimate revenge for Gordon? Do you see any more Alice's being found dead around the city of Gotham? Absolutely. This is a telltale sign of Tetch's obsession with Lewis Carroll in the time of Batman. I even mentioned it in, it, that in the future, he kidnaps women to attempt to hypnotize them into being his Alice. I assume we will actually see him attempt that in a future episode, since this one was not really great at playing along with his whole she's now Alice thing. But again, it didn't really matter this week, since her sole purpose was to provide a body to find next to the bloody note left for Gordon. Yeah, well... Captain Barnes should probably really tell someone that he stupidly got a drop of Alice touches blood in his eyes. Will he? Of course not, because this is the GCPD, an incompetent Gotham institution made even more incompetent by the toxic masculinity of most of its employees. For most of this episode, Barnes seems unaffected by the blood. However, as we learn from Lee in some rat-based trials, Alice's blood, blood can take longer to affect some people than it does others. How long does it take to affect Barnes just about one episode's length, judging by the way his eyes vamped out in the end of anything for you. The infected rat chewing through 12 metal cages to eat his fellow infected rats. Who do you think Barnes will eat first, Nico? Uh, I think it's going to be Gordon, metaphorically, of course, because Barnes loves to chew him out for going too far, going dark, breaking the rules, being too Gotham, and not the White Knight Barnes thought he was. I think Barnes will hulk out on Gordon, or if it's not Gordon, I think it'll be some random small-time crook on the streets, and he'll throw him through a wall or something like that. That's my guess, anyway, either Gordon or some rando. Alright, well, I'm going to try something different to uh, end the cast this week. I got some quick-fire comments and questions. How about Nygma's green suit? Towards the end of the hour, do you wish Gotham would have had Edward and Green a lot earlier? No, you know, I think this was about the right time to start playing with this sort of thing. Too early and it ruins it for later seasons and development towards a full-blown Riddler. Not soon enough and people get anxious and restless. I think season three early on, like this, is a good place to start showing his choices towards Green. In season one and two, we saw the sign outside his house. Now he's starting to dress in green. Soon there might even be a question mark on his tie or lapel. I think slow is the key in this kind of revelation and development. Next one. What exactly is the point of Ivy right now, honestly? I wasn't really thrilled with what she did to Selena. Why was she making fun of her friend? You'd think Selena would have been the first person she sought out after she got it together. Yeah, that's what most people would have thought. But I think Ivy was such a wallflower because she was a homely looking odd and very few people paid attention to her before. Now she has matured, grown into her body, and is using her newfound sexuality to her advantage. Selena has always had a sensual appeal, and now that Ivy has a taste of it, she wanted to play around with it before she went on and met up with Selena again. She also knew she'd eventually run into Selena, and maybe if Ivy was able to get the hang of things, she could actually keep up with Selena now. So I think it was a little bit of jealousy and realizing she wasn't exactly on the same level as Selena that now she thinks she is, so she wanted to have some fun with it before anyone found out about who she is. Alright, last one. Lee punching Nygma was completely unexpected, but I get the feeling she was just working out some angst after Jim blew her off. Do you agree? Uh, yes and no. I think Nygma ruined her life by framing Gordon and killed her friend. She blames him for all of Jim's problems, the loss of their baby, and the death of her love affair with 
Gordon. So I think it was all of that essentially was why she slugged Nygma rather than it being what Jim had said to her moments before. Uh, but it definitely played into it. it. It definitely riled her up and probably allowed her to lose control in that moment. All right. Well, thanks, Steve, for the rapid fire section. I think it worked wonderfully. I hope you bring that back again. Next week, we'll be talking about the next episode in the season three Mad City of Gotham. Now we're going to jump in and bring Michael into the show to finish out the rest of our four CW DC Nation shows each week as Michael and I kick things off with the Supergirl second episode of the second season entitled The Last Children of Krypton. Supergirl ends up seriously injured during an attack on National City by a kryptonite-powered villain, and Superman is blamed for his cousin getting hurt on Hank because the kryptonite was stolen from DEO. Meanwhile, Kara's first day on a new job doesn't go as planned as she meets her new boss, Snapper Car. Last week, we talked about what a great addition Tyler Hawkins, Clark Kent, and Superman were to the series, and his relationship with Melissa Boyle's Supergirl was amazing. The reunion, however, was a short one as Clark was already headed back to his life with Lois Lane in Metropolis after the great team-up scene we got in the cold open. On top of making a great team, it was nice seeing Kara embrace her powers alongside a fellow Kryptonian. Though Alex has always been there for her, Kara feels a deep connection with Clark and was therefore devastated when he broke the news to her that his own city, Metropolis, needed him again. Michael, was this Superman guest appearance too short, or is it good to get him back to Metropolis and Kara back to working on her own in National City, and is it possible that they could do a Superman spinoff with this character in the same universe as all the others in the Arrowverse. You know, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I would love a Superman spinoff series on the CW. I mean, even if it were only a 10 to 13 episode season each year with Supergirl remaining the primary show, I would be very happy. Uh, as I said last week, I would even be happy with Superman joining the Legends and saving not only time, but also the multiverse. That would be a very cool possibility if that's where the show would decide to go. As for the length of Clark's visit, it was definitely short, but I think that if we got used to Superman always being here, we'd lose our love for Supergirl herself and even just her story in general by focusing too much on his because he's the bigger character and he's the one that we care about probably more so than her in general anyway. So I'm glad we saw him this season for sure and I think that was definitely needed and I really hope we see him again. But for now, I'm really happy to see Kara working alongside the DAO again, doing what she does best and kind of going back to the feel of how her relationship is, was with all of the characters last season as opposed to Clark being there and changing things up. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that we're on the same page on that one, Michael. I, I, I had told you that I was worried about him even being on the series before last week and was pleasantly surprised and I think that's why I've been harping on it so much about getting his own show it was so good and they worked together so well that by the end of this this episode the second one even I was hoping for more Superman but I think you're right that this is probably just about a perfect amount of time so we don't get too attached to him on this series and the focus can remain on Kara and Supergirl like you said and yeah I know we talked about Supergirl Superman's future and possible spinoffs and guest spots last week, but I saw just about every major news outlet and source we used for the News with Nico section calling for CW to just go ahead and announce the Superman spinoff already that I figured it warranted another quick comment here. Anyway, Metallo was introduced as Cadmus got their hands on Corbin at the end of the premiere last week. The fine people over at Cadmus equipped him with a Promethean skeleton and a device that is capable of shooting kryptonite. Now in 
in the comics, Metallo is usually depicted as a cyborg with a kryptonite power source, which he uses as a weapon against Superman. Is this what we saw here? Was Corbin actually a cyborg in this episode? The way I saw it was, if that is the case, it, it seemed to me that they transferred his brain into the cybernetic body and then placed either his skin or a replica of his skin on top of the Promethean skeleton. Is that what we saw? Was this a faithful version of the character? And do you think the two cyborgs in this episode were killed at the end of the episode, or will they eventually return? I mean, they could have easily been destroyed, but I'm sure they'll eventually eventually return, or at least a new version of Metallo will be created by Cadmus. And I think you're right to question whether or not this version of John Corbin was comic book accurate, Nico, because I, there have been so many interpretations of the character in both television and comic books that sometimes that's even a little bit screwy. So overall, yes, uh, this version of Metallo is fairly accurate in that he is a cyborg in the sense that he's almost completely machine with very few human parts left. That's why Superman threatens to incinerate him in this episode. It's not because Superman murderer. Even Man of Steel Superman isn't intentionally or even consistently a killer. That's just not super. But he will destroy robots and cyborgs if necessary due to them being essentially ones and o's at their core. And I would say that this version of Mattel is even less human and more robotic than the version we saw in Smallville's ninth season because even he was still largely human with robotic parts within. Okay, yeah, good. I'm glad you uh, you cleared that up because it did seem a little bit, we will murder you yeah, <laughs> in the yeah. moment. Yeah. But... Yeah, a <laughs> but yeah, and that definitely is not Kara or, or Clark. So it, no. it's good that you pointed that out. Now, Cadmus revealed themselves to the world in a big way with a broadcast message to all devices and essentially declared war on Supergirl and Superman and calling for like-minded people to come forward and rise up against them and help them. Michael, my question for you is this. Do you think this was too soon for Cadmus to come out of the dark and declare themselves to the world? Team Supergirl had learned of Cadmus last year, but should they have still remained in the shadows until we got further into this season? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm with you. I think the Justice League Unlimited route, or even just the classic comic book route, and making Cadmus more of a secret organization is definitely the better uh, way to take. And obviously you can't do that now because they have revealed themselves. But, you know, the problem with them publicly declaring war on aliens like Superman, Supergirl, and Martian Manhunt is that ultimately they're the underdogs, the aliens. And people love to root for the underdogs. And sure, we've seen the public turn on Supergirl already, but I don't really see the public wanting to turn on Superman. I mean, you look at the Chicago Cubs and they're a prime example of people rooting for the underdogs regardless of what's going on with the team and how good or bad they are. And I think that's because, you know, the underdog thing is because Superman and Supergirl are so adamant about saving lives that this is going to immediately bite Cadmus in the butt uh, as soon as they endanger one human life and that's exposed. I would have much rather seen live in the shadows for half the season or at least maybe the whole season as opposed to them exposing themselves to the world. I just think it's more interesting and just makes for more drama in the story. Yeah, every version of Cadmus that I can remember has always been that they've been this super secret government organization, even government sanctioned a lot of times. Sometimes mm -hmm. they have ties to Lex Luthor, sometimes they don't. It, it, it's different in every iteration, but it's always been in the shadows. It's always been that secret lab that yeah. Superman has to expose or the Justice League has to expose. And this one is just so out in, in the open that it, it, it seemed to be so different that I was like, oh, I don't know if I like that. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't really think I do either. I just, like I said, I think it's too... I think the problem with them publicly revealing themselves is that people know their agenda right from the get-go. Yeah. And that just isn't interesting. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of the time, the, the good story is from us as the viewer this time, or the reader in comic books, finding out what Cadmus is up to, what their goal is, what their mission is, how they're going to go about it, things like that. And so when you take most of that away from us as a mystery, it does lose some of that appeal and some of that intrigue for sure. Now, Michael, minus about two episodes last season, I have loved just about everything about this series, Supergirl, a series that I was vocally not excited about after seeing the Supergirl pilot at a press screener following Comic-Con. There were a few scenes this week that didn't sit well with me. The whole Kara getting fired and running to Cat Grant to complain like something we might have expected out of Kara early in the series, but not she and Supergirl are too strong and confident now for that. I'm sure it was meant to give Calista Flockhart and Cat Grant one final inspirational monologue before her relegation to a background character, but it just didn't feel like this show, at least not where it is now. Another moment I was not a huge fan of was Kara's pity party scene with Alex when she said she was going to leave National City to be with Clark in Metropolis so she didn't have to deal with losing her job, being a burden on Alex anymore, and just running away from her struggles. Again, this didn't feel like the Kara and Supergirl we've come to know over the run of this series so far. And finally, the scene where Alex went off on her own to confront the DEO agent who sold kryptonite to Cadmus and ended up almost getting captured or killed herself. This was just plain stupidity incarnate. I hate when shows use lazy writing and put characters in situations they never would be in and make mistakes they'd never be stupid enough to make and use her emotional state as an excuse for this lazy writing. Alex is one of my favorite characters on this series because because she is smart, strong, and brave, despite not having any superpowers. I don't know, Michael. Am I being overly critical of these few scenes where the rest of the episode was good? I actually felt the same way. I mean, Kat's speech was great, as always, but Kara complaining the way she did felt like it negated some of her development from last season's finale. Kind of like how we felt about her relationship with Jimmy last episode, whereas she decided to move to Metropolis. When she decided to move to Metropolis with Clark, you know, that I kind of understood. Being with someone like you is someone who understands everything that you go through, and was someone who uh, inspires you to be better than you are is really a big thing and I honestly felt for Kara here because of that. Um, so I, you know, that part I didn't particularly have an issue with until Alex opened her mouth and like you, Nico, Alex is one of my favorite characters on the show as well and it pains me to see her use the way that she is in this episode, especially with the whole I feel left out mantra. I mean, that just isn't Alex Sanders. Quite frankly, it made me like gag. I was almost embarrassed to be a Supergirl fan because of how cringeworthy that scene was and you know, like you, maybe I'm being too harsh but I honestly expect a lot from this show and it's given me a lot already and I really wanted to keep getting better every episode like it did last year. And I felt that every episode last year wasn't even on the last. Uh, while, you know, I feel like some things are moving forward, much of the personal relationship drama this season is steadily declining. Yeah, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. I, I'm hoping it's just a transitional thing with the transition, so you know, transitioning to the second season, to new stories, new people are on the show. Yeah. They moved the location of production. I'm hoping that it is is just 
growing pains and not a shift in focus of the story. Because if it is a, a, a story thing, that's a huge mistake. If it's just a, about growing pains and getting the right people in the right positions to go forward, then I'm okay with that. Because eventually right. it will get it'll get going and get get us to where we want to be with this show. But I'm I'm with you, Michael. Uh, last year was such a such a great journey because it started off the huge not just Kara as an underdog, but the whole series as an underdog for me because I was not I did not like the pilot when I saw the pilot a couple days after Comic Con. A friend of mine is in the in the television and movie business, and she got a, a hold of a screener and a, invited me over, knowing that I'm a huge fan of comic books, and said, "Hey, I got the Supergirl pilot. I know you didn't get to see it at Comic Con. Do you want to come over and watch it?" I was like, "Yes." <laughs> How, how how soon can I come over? <laughs> she was like, uh, how about tonight? <laughs> so we we watched it uh, with a couple of her friends as well, all people in the television and movie industry. And we, we were all kind of like, oh, man, I was hoping for better than that. And so it got me really turned off for the series. Yeah. But then about the third episode, Dan and I were talking and we were finally, we were like, yes, this is what we were expecting. It's starting to get there. And as you heard from our review, last year we were super excited about this series as it got better and better and i know uh, when you started watching it uh i told you get to the fifth episode and you will be hooked you will you will find this series is really worth your time and i think from what we've talked about so far that is exactly what happened yeah no absolutely and i just i hope that that doesn't have to happen this season and what i mean by that is i i really hope that it finds its footing a lot quicker and it doesn't take as long for people to get invested in it. I mean, yeah, a lot of it probably is growing pains, like you said, but I'm really hopeful that it's just not a whole CW trying to push the drama thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's maybe what it is. Yeah, I, I hope it. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I, I, I Finally, I wanted to mention Ian Gomez's addition to the show as Snapper Carr. I'm a big fan of Ian Gomez and love that he can be equally convincing as a serious actor and an off-the-wall comedic actor, which has me thinking that Snapper Carr will have an amazing role on this series as the new Cat Grant replacement for Kara. Also, did you like James taking over Cat's job while she's gone? Yeah, I love that Jimmy is taking over Cat's job. I think that's a great use for him, and hopefully we'll give him more to do until he becomes Guardian, because I, at this point, I don't know when that's going to be. We haven't really spent a whole lot of time on Jimmy yet this season. As for Snapper Carr, he's definitely not the comic book character I'm used to, but I think he'll be a very good addition for the series in Cat's place, being a stark contrast to her role as Kara's boss last year. Yeah, I think eventually he'll grow to like Kara, and they'll have a close relationship, not nearly as close as Kara and Kat, but I, I do think it'll be that way. But there's going to be a lot of fun comedic moments in the in the yeah. intervening time, and that's going to be fun. I could very much see it like a Lois and Harry White kind of relationship, maybe. Okay, yes, yes, that's a that's a great great comparison. Uh, was there anything that you wanted to jump in on before we move on to the Flash that I might have missed? Uh, the only thing I want going forward in the next few episodes is I want to see a little bit more Jimmy and a little bit more win. They were so integral to last season, and I mean, with Superman here, I understand certain characters have to take backseat, and those two, to a point, made sense. I mean, maybe I'd like to have seen more Jimmy Clark interaction, but that's beside the point. But I really hope in the next few episodes, Kara leans back on those two as her support group and as her friends, and that that, that whole Team Supergirl sort of thing really takes off. Yeah, I think that that was probably just the, the Clark issue with uh, him being there and her focus being on him and yeah. getting a chance to work with him. So I do think that that is absolutely important. 
important to the the heart of this series is that Team Supergirl gets back together and it becomes the five of them fighting crime together. Yes, the whole DEO is there, but it's those five that are integral yep. to the story. So yeah, I'm I'm 100% with you. Okay, with that, I think it's time to wrap up Supergirl and move into The Flash with the third episode entitled Magenta. My name is Barry Allen. I am the fastest man alive. Alchemy activates another Flashpoint metahuman, Frankie Kane, and unleashes her disassociative personality of Magenta, which possesses vast magnetic powers. Meanwhile, Harry brings Jesse to the team's Earth in hopes that they can persuade not to use newly gained super speed powers. My initial thought on this episode was that it tackled a very worthy topic with an ill-suited actress. Domestic abuse, as with many real-world problems, especially those for which there are no easy solutions, are worthy issues to attempt to tackle by comics, television, and film, but more often than not leads to far more well-meaning misfires than meaningful commentary on the actual issue. This week's episode, I thought, handled the difficult issue of domestic abuse, orphans, and foster parenting with grace, but wish they had found or been able to get a better actress for the part of Frankie slash Magenta. I know Joey King is considered an indie starlet, but I've never thought she was talented in any of the many films and shows she's been in thus far. Michael, do you have any thoughts on this? Were you impressed with the actress and her portrayal of Frankie and Magento, or would you have preferred something more or better, or am I just being hard on her? I mean, I don't think she was particularly bad, necessarily, but I don't really think she was that all that standout or great, either. Uh, then again, domestic abuse, like alcoholism, we talked about in our era section last week, it's, it's a hard topic to discuss and get right at the same time, and if you've never been through it, it's, it's very hard to try and figure that out as an actor. Um, so while I wasn't particularly impressed, I didn't necessarily think she was all that bad considering some of the other bad villains we've had on Arrow or Flash or Arrow I should say over the past few years yeah you make a fair point about that it is tough to get into character and and know that and and know the pain and bring that pain to the screen if you haven't been a part of it and it probably has more to do with me not being a fan of the actress more than anything she did wrong in the episode so moving on Alchemy is still on his mission of giving powers to those metahumans who possess them in Flashpoint and his victim this week is Frankie Kane, a teenage orphan whose mistreatment at the hands of her abusive stepfather or foster father has made her especially susceptible to the corrupting lure of superpowers, even as her psyche cracks underneath their weight. The way I saw it, with her taking these powers from Dr. Alchemy, she essentially traded one awful dad for another and was only saved by Barry's growing awareness of his own flaws, which allowed him to identify them in others. So despite not being a fan of this actress, I did enjoy the fact that Barry was able to talk her down off the metaphorical ledge in this episode. Michael, despite barely seeing Alchemy since the pilot, his presence has still loomed large as the big bad of this season behind the scenes. Also, much like we saw in the end of the episode last week and in the security cams from this week, do we think that Alchemy will attempt to go after Magenta slash Frankie now that she too has failed him? And what are your thoughts on Alchemy as the big bad of at least the first half of the season so far? Do you have a crackpot theory who he might be under 
under the mask. Yeah, I'll be going after Argenta is a very high possibility. That being said, I honestly don't know who could be under the mask. It's a great question, and I'm really having trouble coming up with an answer, more so than I probably have with any villainous identity over all of the Arrow shows the past few years. The obvious answer is Julian, but I'm not totally drinking that Kool-Aid just yet. I'm super interested to see if it's anyone else we actually know, though. An interesting twist would be Captain Cold from the original timeline, as he blew up Time Masters, possibly sending him into this new timeline that Barry has created, but I feel like that would negate all of his character development in my season of Legends of Tomorrow, and I really don't think that's that's true. That was just something I was throwing out there. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. I, I'm going to probably go ahead and agree with you that I don't think it's probably Captain Cold. I also don't think it's the obvious choice of Julian, just because it's the obvious choice. Right, right. You know, we'll get into that a little bit more in a moment, because I have, I want to harp back on that, but there's some other stuff I want to talk about first. The biggest reveal in this episode, however, is one we've all seen coming for pretty much a year or more now. Harrison Wells returns from Earth 2 with Jesse, who is finally revealed as a metahuman in the wake of last season's recreated particle acceleration explosion. She's delighted, of course, though Harry is terrified for her life. Meanwhile, Wally is immediately upset that he too, having been caught in the same blast, hasn't gone all metahuman. Though Joe is relieved that he doesn't have two speedster stuns to worry about now. So now the questions become, is Wally going to seek out alchemy to give him powers he so clearly wants, damn the consequences, or has alchemy already been contacting Wally in his dreams? Wally seemed freaked out when Frankie told everyone that alchemy came to her in, in her dreams, showing her in her dreams her with powers. And Wally even mentioned to Jesse that he dreamed about having speed before. Does that mean that alchemy is already attempting to turn Wally? You know, I would say that Wally is probably already having dreams of being a speedster, um, like you just said, I guess. And I could easily see him being turned by Alchemy soon in order to fight Barry. Kind of similarly to how Roy Harper was injected with Mirakuru at the second season of Arrow by Brother Blood, um, and then kind of went crazy toward the end of that season. But my thought right now is that Wally is definitely going to seek Alchemy out. Damn the consequences, just as you said. If he's willing to step in front of the car, he's definitely going to be willing to sell his soul for another quick ride. And we already know of his character from even just last year that, you know, he did all this criminal activity by street racing just so that he could go fast, just so that he could get that quick fix. But now we're talking about actual super speed, like actual superpowers that two people, his brother-like figure in his life and a girl who he seems to be very interested in, both have super speed and he doesn't, but he's dreamed of it. I mean, it's a good thing Barry didn't tell him about his identity as Kid Flash in the other timeline because I think he would have already gone to Alpine, but I still think he will soon. Do you think he's going to sell out Barry in a, in order to get that speed and then have to redeem himself after the fact? I think it depends on what Alchemy shows him. If Alchemy shows him the Flashpoint timeline and shows him Barry and him fighting side by side and him even dying partially, I guess, maybe to save Barry, then yes, I, I think that that's a possibility. I wouldn't okay. like to see it, but I, I think that's a possibility. Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of what I was afraid of. It, it, yeah. I don't really want to see that either, but it, it probably would be really good story to see. Yeah. So There's pros and cons to it. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it, it's sometimes, you know it's going to be good story, but you don't want to have to go through it. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes. Yeah. Now, for once, we're not left with the threat looming over Iris and Barry's emerging relationship or the risk that someone they trust will soon betray them. Yet, I can't help but wonder who lurks beneath Alchemy's mask like we were talking about earlier. Julian is an is such an unpleasant jerk to Barry that it would be a tad too obvious, as you said, Michael, to make him this season's big bad. Although, who else are we being asked to invest in enough for us to care if they've secretly gone to the dark side? For now, the answer will have to wait, because a new rogue is targeting Central City next week, and Barry and a newly supersuited Jesse will face the menace of the Mirror Master. Dan and I had talked that Mirror Master was really the only major rogue we had not yet seen on this series, and we're really looking forward to his addition to the show. Michael, I know we already addressed crackpot theories on alchemy, but isn't Julian, as we said, too obvious to be alchemy? And what are your thoughts on Mirror Master finally coming to the flash? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like what we just said. Alchemy, or, oh, wow, Julian is way too obvious to be alchemy. But you know what? On another hand, the Flash has always been fairly obvious in its villain reveals. Think back even pilot Harrison Wells slash Eobard Thawne. I mean, it, it, they laid it out there from the beginning, and yep. they played it through all the way to the end. And even with season two, who shows up in the first episode? Jay Garrick. Not really Jay Garrick. Hunter Zolomon. But nevertheless, Zoom is there from the beginning and is there at the end. So, I mean, I, I don't know, but Julian could be, but I, I don't know. I, I Again, I don't want that necessarily either. I think it is too obvious, and I want them to surprise us this season. As for the new robes, uh, not only is Mirror Master finally coming, but so is the top, which is another classic rogue from the Silver Age of comics. So I'm super excited to have both of them specifically Messer around, and I'm still waiting to see all the rogues unite together to take on Flash. So that means, like, you know, Heat Wave, Trickster, Cold, Weather Wizard, Mirror Master. I want all of them together, because that's what Dan and I, I know, we talked about off-air so many times when it came to talking about Flash, because that was something we always loved in the comic books, and we always loved, too, when there would be this big threat to Central City, and the rogues, because they love their city, would decide to team up with Flash in order to save it. Kind of like we saw Captain Cold even do in Season 1 of The Flash a little bit. Plus, you know, Cold is also back next week, I heard, so it seems like he may have never joined the Legends in this timeline, or yep. maybe he's alive. I don't I don't know what the deal is, but I can't wait for that either. It's it's a lot of exciting stuff, folks, and I'm really hopeful that we get to see more of them this season than we have in the past two. Yeah, me too. Dan and I both talked about the idea of the Rogues joining forces with the Flash and how fun that could be, but also the big Rogues team-up to go up against the Flash. And we saw a bit of that when a couple rogues got together to and cold kind of turned turned on him or yeah. betrayed him to get to free them but at the same time it wasn't as epic and, and large as as we had wanted we also had weather wizard and the trickster the original trickster team up in that one episode but again even that wasn't a big enough threat to really wet our appetite so but getting back to this episode i did love harry wells return to earth one i thought he picked up right where he left off and i love the idea that he and Jesse are unaffected by the timeline changes, and thus they, like Barry, are the same characters we know and love. Michael, what about you? Do you agree? Yeah, I totally do. I think the concept that alternate Earths aren't changed by other Earths' timelines is actually an awesome thing, and like you've alluded to, it also gives Barry someone that he can connect with about differences between the two timelines. And I think that this actually helps give Team Flash an edge on their enemies, as it's possible that, that as they face more challenges in the future, Barry and Wells may be able to use their knowledge of the old Earth-1 timeline to help defeat someone who 
the rest of the team may not have faced in this new time. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that as a possibility. And the other thing is that Barry might not know how to go up against somebody that the, the team in the new timeline has seen and, and defeated and defeated with the their old Barry. So exactly. it'd be fun, fun to, to get some knowledge and not have to go through figuring it out in the in the episode to just have like a cheat sheet in a sense. Right. Either way. So that'll be fun. Kind of going off that, though, you know, you just mentioned they face other challenges with their old Barry. And I know we haven't talked about this yet, but it just just occurred to me when you said that. What happened to the Barry of this time? Do you think that he could turn? Do you, I mean, is he just, I don't know. Right. Yeah, that that's a good point, because we don't know. Essentially, that Barry is only slightly different than the one we have right now. But where did he go? What happened to him? Did he just blink out of existence? And if our Barry goes back to the original timeline or the timelines merge based on our theory of the crossover event, what happens to all of that? Does it just blink out of existence? Does the differences just get incorporated into the new timeline and they're just lost to the ages? They're lost to the year? I, I don't know how they're going to deal with that. I don't know how it's supposed to be dealt with. I, 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 right. I don't know. When you start talking about multi the multiverse, multi-timelines, different aspects like that, you start to get into the, the level of quantum physics and things that are well beyond my understanding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know we've definitely seen multiple versions of Barry in the same timeline at once. I mean, even last season when he went back in time a year to go talk to Eobard Thawne about getting faster to defeat Zoom, there were still two versions versions of Barry. And likewise, when he went back to 15, or it's not 15 years ago, it's the year 2000 when his mom dies. Is it 2000? I don't remember. What it Whatever year it is when his mom dies, we also see two diversions flash. Or, and actually more than any which episode you're looking at. But right. It, you know, you, but then if you go back to season one in the episode where he first time travels to defeat weather wizards that he doesn't destroy Coast City with Typhoon, he goes back in time and he arrives back the day four and he kind of merges into his other self. Right. So I, again, I, I'm with you. I don't really know what we're supposed to believe at this point or if we're even supposed to expect another showdown back because that would almost well that wouldn't really work but that would almost be an interesting concept if alchemy is is another version of barry but i don't know if that's where we'll go either i doubt it yeah that would be almost a bridge too far for me yeah well especially because he doesn't even have speed I, I think if it were a barry from another earth that went bad that had speed that would be different but yeah i, I don't even saying that it doesn't even make sense okay so with that i think uh if you're ready we can move on to arrow so Sounds good. All right. We're going to kick off with the third episode of the fifth season of Arrow entitled A Matter of Trust. Green Arrow is forced to battle new drug dealer Garrett Runnels, who is terrorizing Star City after Wild Dog strikes out on his own to take the dealer down, but quickly learns he's not up to the task. All right, so let's start this week's Arrow discussion with Team. The team has met, had many different iterations over the years from just Oliver and Diggle early on to now include Mr. Terrific, Ragman, Wild Dog, and Artis. I've really enjoyed seeing Oliver struggle to train this new team this season because it's not something we've really got to see do outside of Roy Harper. Almost everyone else who's going Team Arrow has had prior training and could hold their own, including Thea, who was trained by Malcolm, or even Laurel, who was trained by Wildcat a few years ago, our new, who we have not seen since then. Our new recruits, on the other hand, are not as well-versed in comp. Nico, we talked last week about how neither of us liked that Felicity seemed to be overstepping her bounds by correcting or critiquing Oliver in front of his recruits, and luckily it seemed like that event corrected this episode with Felicity going to Oliver private. One of the themes of this week's episode was trust. Oliver needed to learn to trust his team and eventually came around doing it, but the entire episode I actually felt like Oliver was in the right 
in the way that he was handling Wild Dog and that Renee was actually the one who needed to learn trust. In fact, we see that this week's episode, or in this week's episode, that it was Renee's mistake that actually created this week's villain. Nico, do you agree with me when I say that I actually thought Oliver not trusting Wild Dog was well-founded and that Renee needed to actually earn that trust before Oliver should have granted it to him? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think last week was the episode where Oliver needed to learn to trust his team. And this week seemed like it was the follow-up to that where Team Arrow needed to trust that Oliver was their leader, had a plan that they might not know all the details to, and that he would include them in the missions where he felt they were ready and would not get themselves killed or ruin his overall plans in. It's funny that nearly both things happened when Artemis and Wild Dog snuck out to do recon and ended up trying to take down the bad guy on their own. Both sides are slowly learning to trust each other, and while I think this episode took great strides to improve that and kickstart that trust, it still has a ways to go. I'm hoping that with the addition of Dig next week, or at least Oliver going after him to break him out of military custody, it will take another step in the right direction. Yeah, no, I completely agree, and I, I, I think that it does need to take a while for Oliver to trust these recruits, because I, I think part of it, too, is besides Curtis, they don't, they really just don't know him, and they know the Arrow, and they know the Green Arrow, and they know his history, but they don't really know Oliver or his, and I think that unlike Diggle and Thea and Felicity, who vaguely know what Oliver has gone through in his life, them not knowing and having to trust him anyway is going to be a huge step that I think we need to see real soon. Yep. So speaking of teams, the Green Arrow met Felicity's new boyfriend, Billy Malone, this week, as Billy reached out to the vigilante in order to give him information on Prometheus killing a member of the Anti-Crime Unit. Do you think that Billy is becoming a prime candidate for being not only Green Arrow's new cop, and not that he really needs one at this point, being mayor, but also a potential member of the Anti-Crime Unit? And when do you think we'll be able to see them in action? Yeah, if he is not Prometheus, I do think he'll eventually join the Anti-Crime Unit, and it will become super awkward when they all realize who each other are to Felicity. Well, maybe he already knows who Oliver is to her, but no way he knows who Green Arrow is to her, and nor should he really ever find out. I I really hope this doesn't go all CW on us with it being a love triangle thing. I just can't handle that. (laughs) No, I I think I'm beyond that when it comes to Arrow. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, if, If they go old school CW on us, I will be really angry. Really angry. Like high school seasons of uh, Spallville. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. So moving on to that, I'm sure we'll talk about that in nauseam at some point. Uh, with me being a big Stephen Mel fan and following him on Facebook, and I know you are too, Nico, I'm bound to know a little more about his career than some of the average Arrow fans, um, as are you. And for those of you who don't know, the actor who played this week's villain, Derek Sampson, a.k.a. Stardust, is actually a WWE wrestler by the name of Odie Runnels, also known as Stardust. Uh, later this late last year, WWE created a big rivalry between Stardust and Steve Mel, eventually culminating in a face-off between the two warmers in SummerSlam 2015. This episode of Arrow serves almost as a rematch for the, as the two as they duke it out again, this time as the Green Arrow and Derek Sampson, whose face by the end of the episode, by the way, mirrors his WWE face paint a little bit. I thought this was a very cool thing for the Arrow writers to do, and for Stephen Amell to agree to, and quite frankly, the action scenes this week, especially the fight between Oliver and Sampson at the end, were especially good, making me proud to be an Arrow fan. Nico, what do you think of this week's villain, and do you think it's possible for Stardust to return to Arrow uh, in the future, or has he gone good? Michael, I've never been a WWF, WWE, NWE, Raw, or any other pro wrestling show fan. 
But they've always had some of the best performers when it comes to action, stunts, and blockbuster-style shows and films. And especially when those when those wrestlers come and make guest appearances on shows, they always bring that wrestling flair to the shows. And I like that. It does not surprise me that Stephen Amell would want to promote his rematch of sorts with Cody Runnels here on Arrow. Because if you follow his social media account, like you said, and have for the past year or so, this has been a huge thing for him. I obviously did not follow as closely as you did, but now that you mention it, I vaguely remember it all going down. I think it was last summer, like 2015. But anyway, uh, I I do remember a lot of big stuff about him making WWE or I don't know which wrestling show it was that he he made some guest appearances on, but it was a big thing. And as far as Stardust's return, there is no reason he could not return. What I saw in this episode was he was in injured and unable to walk or stand because Oliver sliced his two Achilles and two bicep tendons. But I assumed he did not die in the explosion. If that's true, he should be able to return. And I, for one, would welcome it because I agree. I thought the action and stunts, the action and stunt work this week was top notch. Bam Bam is one of the best stunt coordinators in the business. And we've seen that throughout all of Arrow. It has been one of the best shows for stunt coordination and stunt and just the stunts that they pull. They're far and above the best on the CW. They're they're definitely better than network, the rest of the network television. And I would say it it probably compares very well with what we see on shows with much larger budgets like Game of Thrones and uh and things like that. So I would say he is one of the best in the business. And this week was no was no different. And I thought it was you know, when you're working with two guys like Stephen Amell and and the I, I forget the act, actor's name. Who is Cody Runnels? His real name, or is that just the character he plays in in wrestling? I I don't know to be honest. With you. I think it's his real name, but yeah, I, I wasn't sure if it was a, a stage name like The Rock. Yeah, is Dwayne Johnson's name or 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 not? If that's his his real name, because well, anyway, the the two of them are well versed in stunt stunt fighting and stunts for television. And so I know Stephen Amell also has an occasional stunt double but only for the most insane stunts because steven does a lot of his own even though he's the face of the show he likes to do a lot of his own when he's allowed uh i know network steps in and only allows him to do certain ones but so having those two and then throwing in the third stunt fighter made for a lot better stunt coordination than you would see on a normal show i think it was up to some of the better shows or or scenes that we've seen out of this show and i like that well it makes it a little person too and i I really like that a lot. Um, one of the things I really thought last season was missing was those big, over-top, awesome action stun fight scenes. And yeah, I, I, for whatever reason, I just didn't feel like we got that last season. But this season so far, I think they've been really going full out, kind of going back to what season one and two did so well. And that was the fight scenes. You know, up until Daredevil, I would have said that Arrow definitely had best superhero action sequences uh, of, of any live action television show I've seen. And, you know, going back even this season compared to this past season of Daredevil, I, I would almost argue that Arrow is getting back there again and I'm really excited to see m- more of that in future and I'm really hopeful that Stardust does return because if he does return um, we, w- we would get to see this again and I think that's very sweet. Yeah I think last year so James Bam Bam Bamford that I mentioned before he actually directed one of the episodes and I think that was a, probably the only episode last season that really stepped it up a notch with the stunts and that was the, the episode where they confronted Dark 
Stark's wife, and they had that oh, motorcycle yeah. jump across across the street and over the limousine. They also had right. a bunch of ceiling and roofs falling down on around the actors as they were running through a exploding building. Uh, I think a, a building exploded around the actors and uh, and the characters in that one. But besides that one episode, I thought you're absolutely right with last week being or last season being a little less on the stunts and getting back to that is going to be a big move forward for this show. I completely agree. Uh, the biggest side plot of this week uh, involving Oliver's role as a mayor was Thea Hirenkin Lance as the new deputy mayor and the publicity uh, trouble it gets her in. I have to admit I was worried for a minute uh, when she tendered her resignation that it was actually going to stick because as we talked about in the show before, being Oliver's chief of staff is not only a great role for Thea to take on, but it also gives her a lot of potential on the show moving forward outside of being a vigilante and outside of just being Oliver's kid's sister. Nico, how do you feel about this week's side plot with Thea and do you think she handled that reporter well in the episode? Yeah, you know, I think it showed Thea is green when it comes to understanding politics, but she's also a fast learner. As she said while threatening the reporter in the end, you played me, but you only get to do that once. This was a big lesson to learn for Oliver as mayor and Thea as his chief of staff, that if they truly want to fight crime on both fronts, they have to work at both fronts. And that means that Oliver actually has to be mayor sometimes. And Thea needs to keep the city running until he can make the big picture calls. I think Quentin will go a long way in helping with that. And I think it will be fun to see both sides of this story. You know, House of Cards is an amazing show for a reason. Politics, when done right, can be interesting and exciting. Obviously, this show will never be more exciting when Oliver is the mayor than the Green Arrow. But if the writers do their jobs, it won't be a major drop off either when we go to his mayor stories that it's not super action over here and boring as crap on the other side. And if they can keep it sort of, you know, really exciting vigilante stuff and still exciting and intriguing and interesting when it goes to the mayor's side, I think that this season's going to be a lot more successful. I agree. And I, I think you're right. If the writers do do their jobs, it is going to be awesome. And could maybe not be House of Cards, but maybe be the CW's version of it to a length. And I think right. that would be a very cool thing for Arrow to do because that's not something any of the CW shows, specifically Arrow, have ever done before. And actually, one of my favorite parts of this episode was when, when Oliver made the comment toward the end to the reporters that whatever comes out of his office is his decision. It's it, right. it's it's his. And therefore, you know, going with that theme of putting his trust in Thea and even in Quentin to do their jobs when he is gone. And I, I like that a lot. But I agree. I think there are times where Oliver is definitely going to have to come in and make big picture calls. And I think he should because that's what his job is. Probably the storyline I'm most excited about seeing move forward this season, or at least at this part of the season, is Diggle's army situation. Diggle has always been a soldier at heart. He's always taken orders and always done what he can to do the right thing. I don't know about you, but I really love the Diggle story this episode. And seeing Deadshot again was a really nice surprise, especially since they killed him and Amanda Waller initially because of the Suicide Squad film that came out this past summer, uh, which I personally think is a waste of both characters, but whatever. If if The Flash and Superman can be on TV and in the films, then Deadshot and all of those characters should not be a problem. But I dig Diggle having a conversation with Law in this episode was a great way to show his internal conflict about killing his brother Andy last season. Showing Diggle that all the time he was mad at Deadshot killing his brother, he really needed to kind of put that blame on himself for pulling the trigger. Now, I personally don't feel like Diggle should have necessarily killed Andy last season, and I didn't feel like it was totally out of character, but I didn't feel like it was totally in character either. But after betraying the team, allowing Dark to kill Laurel, and threatening Lila and baby Sarah, <clears throat> I mean John Jr., Diggle definitely had a good reason killing Andy right or Nico, what were your thoughts on Diggle's story this episode? Deadshot and Lila coming to Oliver to help break Diggle 
Wow. Are you as excited to see next week's episode as I am? Yeah, I thought the surprise guest appearance of Deadshot on this week's episode was a welcome surprise. I think it was a huge mistake to kill both Waller and Lawton last season to make room for their cinematic universe roles. But that was the decision. And as stupid as it was, we have to live with it now (laughs) for better or more likely worse. I thought using the hallucination of Lawton in the cage with John was an amazing way to personify the guilt and resignation he that has overtaken Diggle since killing his brother. Sure, he didn't have to kill Andy, and in many ways it was not a good shooting, but it happened and there was plenty of justifiable reasons for it. It will be interesting to see if Diggle will be willing to go with Oliver when he breaks him out next week, or if he'll have to essentially Oliver will have to take him by force, and once he's out and calmed down after being captured or jailbroken, whether he'll see from Oliver's side of view and be willing to rejoin the team and clear his own name. Yeah, no, I agree. And that was one of my thoughts, too, going into this next episode was I don't think Diggle's going to want to leave. And he's going to want to take this punishment as he told his wife. And while that's commendable and I understand his reasoning, I I think Oliver really does need Diggle. And I think it may be even more so than Felicity at that to a point. And I'm I'm really hopeful that that tension between the two characters, once Oliver does get him out, because we know he probably will, will not continue on for a long period of time. Finally, let's briefly talk about this week's flashbacks to Oliver's time in Russia. As we find out, the men that the Brafa killed last week during Oliver's initiation were actually premised all along as Anatoly tries to convince Oliver that he must trust the Brafa. This story clearly paralleled our Team Arrow trust story. That was the primary focus of this week's episode, and even the side political trust story as well. And I thought it did a fantastic job of keeping the theme. In fact, even Thea realizing she couldn't trust the reporter and Diggle deciding not to trust himself after the conversation with Lawton all flowed throughout this episode extremely well. Nico, what were your thoughts on the flashbacks this week, and could you see the trust theme as well as I did? Yeah, as you said, they were perfectly suited to fit with the theme of the episode. The flashbacks have worked best when it, when that is the goal, and the use of them in the series. Unfortunately, that was not always the case last year, and sometimes you'd have trouble figuring out just what they were trying to do with them, and you know, people got bored with it. I've not felt that way at all this season, and I'm really interested, maybe even at times more so than with the current storyline story. Yeah, yeah. I agree. So that being said, do we have any more final thoughts on Arrow this week? I know I have one theory as to maybe who Prometheus could be due to Flash's timeline change, but I'll let you go first and then I'll, I'll follow you. Sure. So maybe this is just my dislike of the Felicity character, but I'm not invested at all in the whole Felicity and Ragman story arc. I know that Mr. Fantastic slash Curtis told her that she had to tell him about what she did because secrets are bad and all. Uh, I think that might even be a direct quote from him. (laughs) But was she telling Ragman because he'd eventually find out, or was it an attempt to ease her own guilt? Because if it was only to assuage her own guilt, then that is a terrible thing to do. Making him relive his pain so that she can feel better about herself? I'm really hoping that that's not the case, that it was because this could eventually tear apart the team if she didn't tell him. But if it's really just about assuaging her own guilt, I'm uh, that's not cool that I've not liked the Felicity and Oliver stuff but throughout all of it I have 
always or originally I was a Felicity fan of the character and I wanted her to be that great character she started out to be. So this is not that character if that's the case. Yeah, I agree. I think there's an argument on some level to be made for both sides. I think obviously Curtis telling her that she needed to tell him because secrets are bad and all. Um, I, I believe I think there is an argument to be made that that was that was the catalyst for doing it. But I also think there's an argument to be made that it was for her own sake. And I think that's probably more so than the other. Okay. But yeah, I, I just don't know. That being said, I do have, and I want to ask you thoughts on this for sure, a thought on who Metheus possibly could be this season. Due to the timeline changes on The Flash, due to the small things that have changed throughout history of um, Arrow and The Flash, and even Legends to a point, with Captain Cold no longer being a part of Team, is it possible, do you think, that Prometheus could actually be a revenge-crazy Tommy Merlin after what happened with The Undertaker? I mean, I know that's a little bit of a stretch, maybe, but but hear me out. If, If baby Sarah is no longer baby Sarah, and is now baby John, Jr. Is it possible that Merlin could have easily still staged his son's death and that Tommy could have been alive all along? Yes. <laughs> yes, I love that. That is a great that is a great theory. I like it because it would also explain the reason for the personal grudge against the Green Arrow. Right. And it also could explain the reason that it's taken five years for him to recuperate from his injuries if he survived his injuries rather than dying from them, or whatever the case may be. I, I like the idea. I think there are a few holes in the in the theory, in the sense that if Malcolm Merlin saved Tommy or, or kept him secretly alive and faked his death and ultimately trained him, why would he have trained Thea as well in this timeline? I mean, would he have still done it? Would she not have known about him? Would he not have brought his two apprentices together? Or maybe not, you know? I mean, so there are some holes that need to be explained i'm i'm not saying that they're theory killing holes right they are definitely just things that need to be explained if uh, it ultimately turns out to be the case yeah well i I, and i do want to respond to that for sure because if if tommy were in a state of being you know on life support or something like that then that would cause him malcolm i mean to still seek out thea as his next heir because he doesn't necessarily have the faith that tommy will wake up maybe he saved tommy and hit him somewhere else maybe he didn't even save tommy and somebody else did and decided to use his hatred against Oliver to fight him later. Uh, it could even be the Russian character that we've talked about as possibly yep. being Prometheus or possibly even just being the villain in flashbacks. Um, I don't I don't really know. I just think it's a great way to maybe bring Tommy back as we know that, I don't remember the actor's name right now, but as we know, Tommy shows up every season in some form or another, whether it's flashbacks or as a ghost. And we do know that at the end of Sacrifice, the season one finale, Tommy hated Oliver. Tommy was angry at Oliver being the arrow. And that kind of got rectified the next season in the episode three ghosts where Oliver sees Tommy's ghost and, and he tells him to get up and keep fighting and I and I love that don't get me wrong I love that and it really helped Oliver, motivate Oliver a lot Tommy's death helped me out. but I think this would be a great way to bring the series full circle and even in the comic books the character of Tommy Merlin in the new 52 had his death death fate after being Oliver's best friend and later returns or is slated to return as his arch nemesis so I think it's definitely a theory that is a possibility especially with the timeline changes made by the Flash this season. Okay, yeah, definitely. And uh, I looked it up, Colin Donnell. Thank you. Yeah, I could yeah. not remember his name in my life. That Okay, so that all being said, um, I think it's probably time to move over to DC's Legends of Tomorrow uh, with our review on the second season, episode two, entitled The Justice Society of America. The 
The legends travel to Nazi-occupied Paris and are surrounded by the Justice Society of America. They discover a time aberration that threatens the JSA, but the JSA doesn't want their help. Meanwhile, Nate tries to prove he should be part of the team. Starting off the bat with the title of this episode, we begin right where last week went off. The Legends of Tomorrow being introduced to the Justice Society of America in 1942. Like we said last week, this is the second time in CW's history that the JSA have been on television. The first being in the Absolute Justice two-parter from Smallville's ninth season, which I highly recommend to those of you in the audience who are interested in the JSA. With this opening, we get to see each member of the team display his or her powers. Obsidian's dark energy, Vixen's animal abilities, Stargirl's cosmic rod, and so on. And they were all a lot of fun to see and use this week. Nico, what were your thoughts on the opening battle sequence between the Legends and the JSA? Did you enjoy the superhero action as much as I did? Were there any JSA members that we didn't see that you wish we had? You know, I was slightly disappointed with how easily and handedly the JSA dismantled the Legends team and showed them up. Sure, it was designed to show how a well-oiled and coordinated team can work and, and show the Legends just how dysfunctional and unorganized the team was without a dedicated leader. But shouldn't this maybe have gone to a draw or did it have to go this way to move the story forward? I think either way, the JSA kicked the Legends' asses in a great action scene that showed off each of the JSA's individual powers and abilities to us as viewers and gave us a sense that this team knew what they were doing. As for the JSA members not on the team or that we didn't get to see, I'd love for during the crossover, Jake Eric's Flash to rejoin the team. Oh. And and possibly Spectre could be cool, especially since they did start to introduce Jim Corrigan on Constantine. True. There is also Dr. Fate, but to be honest, I've never really been a fan, so I was alright with him not being mentioned or appearing. But I'm sure if we searched hard enough through that trophy case, you might just find Dr. Fate's helmet like it was on, in Constantine's bunker. And I believe on the Smallville version of JSA as well. There's always the other possibility that... We could see a Dinah Lance version of Black Canary as well, even played by Katie Cassidy as an ancestor that looked like her or some other explanation for her appearance on the show, like we discussed last week with the death of Dark. Just those are some of my random thoughts anyway. No, those are all great. I, I like all of those. I even really do like Dr. Fate, and I understand not being a fan of him because I'm not totally a fan of him either. But we have seen the Dr. Fate helmet on Constantine as well, like you said, and I really think he's an integral part of the JSA just in general. So I, I I agree. I also think it would have been very interesting to see a younger ver like a different time period version of Hawkman and Hawkgirl as a part of the JSA. I personally felt like that might have been a wasted opportunity. Yeah, you know that that's that's absolutely right because in I don't know if they were original founding members, but they were early members of 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 one version of the JSA. So absolutely, they 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 could easily have been a part of this as well, and it would have been versions that had never met the legends. So it would have added to the distrust of the the JSA in the early parts of the, the season because they would have been like, oh, my God, you guys are alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know? exactly. And it would have been a great way to bring those cast members back had they been interested in coming back as well. I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that they didn't only because I thought that the Kendra character did not work at all. Well, I, I but if you had made her maybe a different character, like I'm obviously a past version of herself, but different, maybe it could have. I don't know. Maybe I'm trying to justify that a little bit too much, but I still feel 
feel like it was a little bit of a wasted opportunity, seeing as how important the Hawks have always been to the JSA. Even Hawkman being the leader and chairman at times. Yeah, and I think that could have worked out very well if, if Carter Hall had been the only surviving member at that point. It, yeah. it, it was in the, in their timeline at a point where uh, Kendra or, or uh, whatever her name Shire. was in that time, Shira was, was dead at the, that point in their timeline, and he was still alive and, and fighting to prevent his own death and prevent uh, Vandal Savage from finding him or, or, or going after him. It would have been interesting to see. Yeah, but anyway, moving on from that, after getting banished by the JSA from 1942, Haywood finds out that history has been changed once again. Going back to help save the JSA, they infiltrate a Nazi nightclub in Paris and accidentally blow Vixen's cup. I really like the scene at the nightclub and found Ray not highly Hitler was quite humorous, but one of my favorite parts had to have been Buster Science singing Edelweiss for the sound of music. That was just crisis. Originally, I thought that he was going to blow their cover immediately by not singing or refusing to sing, uh, but I was pleasantly surprised. Nico, did you enjoy the legend Simon Paris? Yeah, you know, this one, this scene was probably not quite as intense as the Nazi scene in Inglorious Bastards, but effective nonetheless. I did enjoy this scene and was impressed by Victor Garber's singing. I'm hoping it really was him because it seemed that way and that makes it great. But if it was voiceover, I'm a little bit disappointed. But <laughs> still, I if it really was him singing, then I, I absolutely loved it. I thought Ray being captured for not hailing Hitler was humorous as well. And his capture also later gave him an opportunity to prove that he can be a hero even without a suit, something apparently he needed to prove to himself again this season. But I'll let you get into that in a moment. All in all, I did enjoy these scenes. Yeah, and I thought the use of uh, Vixen in this episode has actually been interesting, seeing as how, you know, we've seen her on Arrow. She obviously has her own animated series on the CWC. She is a part of the present day Arrowverse, but this is a... Uh, not a past version of character, but the grandmother character we know in the present. Yep. And I thought that was a very interesting addition, seeing as how well-received she has been, not just on her animated series, but on her appearance in Arrow last season, which I actually love. I almost wonder if they couldn't get that actress back. And so realizing that they just threw her into the Justice Society, something that Vixen has never been a part of, and decided that they were going to play off that, that I thought I think is an interesting way to do it. Yeah, they absolutely wanted the original actress. She just was contractually not available. She's in another, uh, in a, a movie or uh, another series at the moment and was contractually unavailable to make the commitment that they wanted. And she's like, have me on as a guest, you know, every other episode or something like that. But it just didn't fit into the schedule. Bummer. Uh, one of the biggest themes with the JSA this week's episode was their insistence that not only were the legends wrong at every single turn, but that they weren't really heroes. Personally, this bothered me a lot about the, this version of the JSA. I know on Smallville that Hawkman, the JSA's leader on that series, was not open to the idea of the future Justice League existing and wanted Clark, Oliver, and John and the rest of the team to stop playing hero. And it seems that DC's Legends of Tomorrow has taken a plot point or two from the Absolute Justice crossover by making this version of the JSA feel the same about Legends. Maybe, actually, I think more so. Even going so far as for Vixen tell Ray that he's not a hero. Something we as Arrowverse fans know for 100% fact is false. One of the things that makes the Justice Society stand out in comic books is their openness, acceptance, and willingness to help younger and inexperienced heroes find their way. And the comic books, Stargirl and Obsidian aren't even part of the JSA in the 1940s. She's drafted in during the present day when they take her and, like I said, Obsidian under their wings to train them and make them better heroes for tomorrow. This is how I felt the JSA should have been handled here in this episode, but I got the exact opposite impression. Something that I didn't expect, seeing as how our man shows up at the end of last season, I felt like we were going to maybe get the classic version of the JSA. Nico, what were your thoughts on the way the JSA was handled, or handled the Legends, and do you think the JSA's roles in the Arrowverse, what do you 
think their role should be in the Arrowverse going forward. Yeah, Michael, I was not a fan of it either. I, I've often said that I don't like the way comics deal with team-up arcs because they all seem to go the same way, with the heroes fighting each other, then reluctantly working together because of a common enemy, to eventually becoming friends and teammates. And would you look at that? That's exactly how this episode <laughs> seemed to go. Go figure. I think the JSA was against the future heroes because it is meant to show that through this working with the Legends team, maybe that's where the openness and willingness to work with others and mentor young heroes comes from. Maybe they learn it through their experience with the Legends here. You can see this play out most noticeably in this episode with Commander Steel. Initially, he wants nothing to do with the Legends, especially Dr. Hathaway. In time, he realizes that rather than push these heroes away or stomp out their hopes and dreams of being heroes, they should be mentoring and working with them to achieve their goals. This will all take a bunch of steps back when our man's death is falsely blamed on the legends because his dying words were time traveler, potentially. But eventually, this experience of working with the legends will open the JSA up to the concept of inclusiveness and mentorship in the future. At least that's how I see it working. Yeah, that's a very, a very interesting way to think about it. If the legends were the catalyst just in general to them being the JSA that we as comic book fans know them as, that I think that's a very good way to, to do that at this point, seeing as how the Legends have already messed with time once or twice, and Reverse Flash has messed with time, so obviously things would happen differently now compared to how they did. Uh, but I think you're right. I think Iron Man's death is definitely going to be falsely blamed on the Legends, um, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. At one point in this episode, Nate was revealed to be a hemophiliac, and after rescuing his grandfather, Commander Steel, he was critically injured to the point of death. In fact, if not for Ray's changes to the Nazi super serum, a clever play on the Captain America story, Nate would have died. Uh, we see in the trailer for next week's episode and even at the end of this week's kind of that Nate is fine but is going to be slightly changed possibly on his way to becoming Citizen Steel the superheroic identity his comic book counterpart shares Nico what were your reactions to Nate being revealed as a hemophiliac his relation to Commander Steel and do you think he's a good addition to the Legends this season with the absence of Rip Hunter Captain Cold and the Hawks yeah so uh, as I was saying much of the focus on Commander Steel and Nate this week helped progress the story of trust between the teams and I believe will ultimately pay off for the JSA in the long run. I enjoyed this story arc. I really did. I, I re also really liked the addition of Nate to the team. He'll never be able to replace Rip, played by Arthur Darville, or Captain Cold, played by Wentworth Miller's absence from the team. But he is a huge improvement over the Kendra character from last season. And I think as he becomes a full member of the team, both as Dr. Hathaway and Citizen Steel in the future, I think it will be even better. I'm excited to see where that goes. I, I think it's a good addition. I think it's going to be a good story and I, I like that actor I, I I've seen him before and I think he he's gonna bring some fun to this to this episode I'm trying to remember it was a sci-fi show that I'd seen him on no he was the brother in minority report that's where I remember him from ah the movie or the show the, the show okay okay I've not seen plenty of other stuff too but that's the last place I remember him from gotcha and I I think he's also gonna be a great addition because I'm really excited to see another set of superpowers on the legends I, I, one of the things I wish the legend, the legends that Rip Hunter had picked had were more superpowers themselves. I have always loved seeing Firestorm and the Atom take flight and fly around blasting things with lasers or fireballs. I think that's great. But, but I have wanted to see pairs with super abilities. And having Vixen now on the show, probably joining the legends full-time in the next few episodes, and Nate now possibly getting superpowers, I think that's an awesome thing to show. And I think going forward, that's going to help. Finally, in the closing moments of this episode, First Flash rise of JSA Brownstone and kills Rex Tyler, a.k.a. Our Man, the 
leader of the Justice Society of America due to him traveling to the future and warning the legends not to go to 1942. Nico, what do you think Thawne has planned next? I I'm honestly at a loss. What time period do you think he'll try and influence? What is he going to do with this amulet he stole? What does all of this have to do with the Flash? Because we know Thawne never does anything apart from dealing with Barry Allen. What is going to go on? Yeah, those are all great questions. I don't have good answers for that. <laughs> That's all right. I don't either. Of course, the Flash is somehow tied into all of this because you're correct. Thawne never seems to do anything that doesn't somehow tie back to Barry Allen and the Flash. How that ties back to 1942, the JSA, this pendant that was the focus of the episode, and the Legion of Doom and what they're doing in the past, all of that, I have no clue. Could Jay Garrick's Flash have something to do with this time traveler? Could it be the Jay that eventually t talked to Barry last week in the diner and 1942? Too, is where he went back in time in order to try and change the past and that's how we'll get him in the crossover on Legends. What I mean by that is I might be trying to stretch the fact that Jay Garrick's Flash was a founding member of the JSA to make it fit this series but my idea was that the Jay that we met in last week's episode was actually... Of the Flash. Uh, oh, yeah, of the Flash. He had gone back in time and, and by making changes went back in time to this 1942 to make changes then there and ended up changing something drastically that ultimately the legends have to fix or something of that nature or the crossover fixes it would get super complicated and be way out there but is that possibly what they're trying to do or am i just trying really hard to get jay garrick on the legends show no i i think that could be a possibility because i mean i've mentioned it before i mentioned it last week and i believe i mentioned it the week before in the comics when time traveling occurs there's always the possibility possibility that the time traveler may actually end up on the past or future of another Earth on a ne right. in another part of the multiverse. That's always a possibility. And now Barry Allen has never done that to our knowledge so far, which is good. But had Jay Garrick done it and actually arrived on Earth 1's 1942 and joined the Legends or some something happened and it got changed, that is for sure a possibility. And I, I think that would be a great way to introduce not only the concept of time traveling through the multiverse, but also just bringing Jay Garrick's Flash onto the JSA. Yeah. Of all the shows that we cover, this is the one I have the least idea of where things are going, and yeah. that's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a really good thing. It just doesn't make for very good crackpot theories at the no. moment. Because I can't come up with anything because I, I just have no sense of where it's going to go. You mentioned that you think, and I, I agree, that Vixen is going to join the Legends. And I think I do remember that being a part of it. And I think it's going to be as a result of Our Man's death in this episode and the fallout in the next episode that I think originally I said I do believe that they're going to blame it on the Legends because of the time travel thing. Yes. But in the, in the end... I think they're going to realize that that's not the case. And it was another time tra traveler. And that that means that whatever their the Legends mission is, it's now Vixen's mission as well. And she wants to join and help stop the changes to the timeline. And if they're successful, maybe that'll mean our man will return because there was definitely something going on between them. I agree. And I just want to know when our man would have gone future. I guess, well, I do want to know that, but I guess it would have changed now that he's been killed. But yeah. I don't know. Very, very strange. The legend still saw him, regardless of the reverse flash killing him past. He still faded away, which I, I think that's very interesting. Time travel rules on these DC shows on the CW have always been a little screwy, so I, I, I always try and navigate it, but I never really get a clear answer. But I agree. I think uh, Vixen will definitely join the team for
for those reasons exactly and join their mission, even maybe leaving the JSA altogether in order to do so. Maybe they reject her for doing it. I don't I don't know. It's always a possibility. But I know for sure she's definitely going to be going after Heatwave first because he's the one who's blatantly a criminal. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think that's all we got for Legends this week, guys. Um, thanks for the great discussion, Nika. Yeah, alright. With that, I think we're going to jump into the closing and we'll talk about on next week's episode, we're going to continue to cover the fall 2016 TV season for DC Nation with an episode of Gotham, Supergirl, Flash, Arrow, and DC Legends of Tomorrow. No big surprise there, as that is going to be what we will do until probably the mid-season finales. So make sure to join us for all of that. But for now, and most of this season, we're going to roll Dan's pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast network website, acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows, available as their own individual programs. Get the iTunes store. Get Google Play store. Guys, for the podcast shows, get our network. We have the DC Nation podcast, located at dcnation.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's dcnation.acrosstheairways.com, which reviews popular DC Comics-related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast, located at Marvelverse podcast.acrosstheirways.com Again, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheirways.com which reviews Marvel comics related TV shows and movies. And we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheirways.com Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheirways.com In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheirways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes core game of thrones like the walking dead doctor who star wars rebels supernatural and more including sitcoms such as the big bang theory got the muppets also you can listen to across the airways the dc nation podcast thrones cast the game of thrones podcast got the marvelverse podcast got the mixed radio station code by jack stifle stitcher radio or if you use apple devices download the podcast box app got if you're on a windows or android device you can download our apps from the amazon marketplace got the windows marketplace got a regular windows or windows phone app because for how you you can contact us to give your own listener feedback got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say do you like what we're doing, email us at acrosstheairways.gmail.com Again, that's acrosstheairways.gmail.com Comment on our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, got across their waves, there's no thought in there, it's just across their waves Join our circle, got Google Plus, or leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363 Again, that's 773-809-3363 Also, sending us an email Please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject line. Give you are sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Alright, so once again, for our ATA podcast hosts, Nikki, Amy, Wu Kim, Joshua Mercury, James Heffel and Steve Nostro. I'm Nico Reifstek. And I'm Michael J. Petty. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways. See you guys, and welcome back to the DC Nation. One, two, three. One, two, three. Little voice, little voice, every morning you greet me. Small and white, clean and bright, you look happy to meet me. Hey,
I know the Baron's plan. Let's get out of here. Bless my homeland forever. Jeffster lives, man. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.